Well, this morning we begin a study of the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. What comes to mind when you think about the city of Corinth or the book of 1 Corinthians? Well, ancient Corinth was one of the largest and most important cities in Greece. Maybe you didn't know that. We often think of Athens as being the largest and most important city in Greece, but Corinth actually replaced Athens and became the provincial capital of Greece because of its significance and its importance in that day. In 146 B.C., that's before the time of Christ, Rome demolished Corinth. And then about a 100 years later, 44 B.C., Julius Caesar rebuilt and repopulated Corinth. And he did it with three different kinds of people. He sent to Corinth freedmen, his own veterans who were now retired from the army, and tradesmen and laborers. And so Corinth actually became a thriving metropolis, especially for business-type trade. And Corinth in that day was very iconically Greco-Roman. It was that period of time when Greek ruled the world and then the Romans conquered and ruled the world. And the Romans were sort of recyclers. They would take what was ever in that culture and they would allow it to continue to exist, but they would put their government in. And so Corinth was very iconically both Greco-Greek and Roman. Politically, it was very Roman because of Rome putting up its tripartite government in place. But culturally, it was still very Greek, and, and Greek was the language of the society. Corinth ended up being a massive boom town for business. And that was because, as you can see, Corinth is strategically situated um, on an isthmus. Isthmus. And uh, because of its location, it was the master of two ports. Uh, one coming from the west and the other coming from the east. So it was a, it was a center of trade and especially so because Corinth right here in this middle, this landmass in the middle of this, these two seas, it, it became such an important strategic port because it was a shortcut so that people, the sailors didn't have to go all the way down around the bottom of the isthmus of Greece. And so they would gladly take that shortcut through. Well, the problem was there was a two-mile landmass between these two um, these two seas. And so what the uh, brilliant Corinthians did is they, they came up with a strategy to haul cargo from one ship to the other on this two-mile road that end up being called the Diolkos, D-I-O-L-K-O-S, Diolkos, Diolkos, maybe, I don't know, Diolkos. It ended up being a rutted road, which I have a picture of, a rutted road can still be seen today where slaves would carry 
cargo two miles across the land from one sea to the other, and they would even carry uh, light ships across this road as well. Well, in the 1800s, they did away with the road and put in the Corinthian Canal, which you can see must have been a feat of labor to dig down that far. Amazing. Well, because it was situated in such a strategic location for trade, um, Corinth became um, very wealthy, very much a thriving center of the day, and especially when travelers would get off the boats, they would immediately encounter the market. Have you ever been to a foreign country to encounter the market? Usually very near wherever you come to the country by airport or by bus, uh, there's the market just awaiting you with all of the sights and sounds and smells of the culture. If you've never experienced it, it's amazing how one country can smell completely differently than another country. And we all have our scents. The scent of Corinth was all over the market. And these travelers would be welcome to the Corinthian baths. Maybe you have heard of those. Corinth was famous for its baths where travelers would go and, and be refreshed. There was even one called the uh, Calderium, which was a plunge bath uh, in a cauldron. And uh, Corinth was most popular because of the uh, Ismithian Games. That's one of the earlier four parts of the Olympic Games. You could probably pronounce it better than I can. The Isthmian Games. It was a massive tourist attraction that brought people from all over that world to Corinth on that Isthmith. Isthmith. I'm just going to stop saying it. <laughs> Peninsula. Yeah, the Games. It was... Every two years, and it traveled to four different locations. Corinth was one of those locations. Um, you remember in those early days, there were uh, foot and chariot races. Um, this is one of the ancient pieces of art associated with those games. There was wrestling, boxing, and then another unpronounceable name that was basically mixed martial arts, where it was just total body, basically no no rules, um, kind of fighting. And then, of course, there were the gladiators, right? All of that really happened, and it happened in Corinth, the book that we're about to read about, the city that we're about to spend some time studying. And the uh, these early games were not just athletic contests, but they were also contests of music and art and drama. If we were to go to Corinth today, though, as back then, the most striking Visual site was the uh, Acro Corinth. Acro meaning upper. Corinth had a massive rock fortress that overlooked the city. Isn't that amazing? And on top of that was the Acropolis. The uppermost part of it was a castle. It was fortified. It was thick rock walls. Massive fortress overlooking Corinth. And then right below it, probably the most iconic um, mental image I have of Corinth is 
the temple of Apollo. So Corinth, Corinth was um, very much pluralistic in its worship. Lots and lots of temples. Temples to Apollo, temples to Aphrodite, temples to many different of the gods and goddesses of the, of the Greek culture. This one right there is still stands today. It was built in 560 BC. That's old. Apollos was the son of Zeus. He was basically the god of everything. He was, he was the god of healing and youth and music and arts and knowledge. And uh, then there was the famous temple of Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love. And you probably have heard stories about what worshipers would do at the temple of Aphrodite where there were often temple prostitutes. Well, given the uh, significance of Corinth, we can understand why Paul targeted that for his gospel mission in A.D. 50. So if Corinth was rebuilt by Julius Caesar right before his death in 44 B.C., only within a 100 years, Paul was on the scene to a thriving new Corinth. And Acts chapter 18 tells us the story, kind of gives us a bird's eye view of Paul's ministry in Corinth. So take your Bibles and let's turn there first before we go to... Um, 1 Corinthians, Acts 18. It says that Paul traveled from Athens to Corinth. And the first thing that happened was he met uh, a husband and wife named Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla. They also were tent makers. And we can understand why tent making would be such a thriving business there in Corinth with all the travelers and all the various um, businesses and marketplaces and games and such. You can imagine why tents would always be necessary. Paul was a tent maker. Aquila Priscilla were tent makers, leather workers. And uh, Paul ended up staying at their house, living there for 18 months. That was his total stay in Corinth. If you, if you look there at verse 4, Paul kind of went about his normal ministry in Acts 18.4 where he went to the local synagogues first, but uh, Acts 18 tells us that even though he was trying to persuade the local Jews of the gospel of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that they were very skeptical, and in fact, uh, they opposed and reviled him. So you see in verse 6 there that Paul shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent, from now on. I'm going to the Gentiles. And Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles. So there he just focused on all of those former veterans and their families and the tradespeople who were the Gentiles living in Corinth at that time. You'll see in verse 7 that one of the things that God did was um, that Paul had been beaten up and attacked so many times that God apparently took mercy on him here in Corinth and, and appeared to him in a vision by night and said, Paul, I want you to be bold. I want you to, don't worry about it. Proclaim the gospel. No one in Corinth is going to harm you. That's a very interesting little thing that happened to Paul in Corinth. I didn't know that happened, but it was immediately put to the test because those Jews who opposed and reviled him, grabbed him, 
brought him up before the tribunal and wanted to kill or stone Paul, you know, beat him up again. But the, uh, the local governor there, his name was Gallio, wouldn't have anything to do with it. And you can see there in uh, verse 8, uh, pardon me, in verse 7, that, um, that Gallio just shut the Jews down, wouldn't have anything to do with it. So Paul moved on. Um, he, he went to the Corinthians and, and look there in verse eight, eight. He, he went to another part of town to a guy named Justice's house. He lived next door to a synagogue. And sure enough, the ruler of the synagogue, probably a Jew, ends up trusting Jesus as his savior, him and his whole family. And then look at verse eight. Many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. So Paul ends up planting the church at Corinth. And we know that not only from this particular text, but 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to this. Paul said, for though you have many countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul had the privilege of being the one to plant the church in Corinth. He stayed there for 18 months, it tells us in Acts 18, verse 11, and then he moved on to Syria, and guess who he took with him? He took Aquila and Priscilla with him. And then we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the last chapter of the letter that we're about to study, that uh, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, this, or yeah, this letter that we call 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote it while he was in Ephesus. And piecing Paul's travels together, we know that that was around 54 AD. So Paul was there for 18 months, from 51, 18 months. He was gone for about two and a half years, and then he writes this letter back in 54. So the the book that we have in front of us, 1 Corinthians, again, I encourage you now to turn over there in your copy of God's Word. And if, and if you don't know where that is, just look on page 952 of the Bible that we provide there on the floor. This is a letter from Paul who planted the church back to the church at Corinth. It was one of about three or four letters that Paul wrote, and chapter 5, verse 9 tells us this is not the first letter. So we call it 1 Corinthians because we only have two. Only two were preserved by God for his word. But of the three or four letters, this is at least the second one. You can look at that later in chapter 5, verse 9. But this letter that we have before us we kind of get a sense of what was going on in the church at Corinth at that time. So just as an overview before we dive into our study uh, more deeply of this letter over the next probably 25 weeks or so, the structure of this letter shows that Paul is addressing a number of issues and questions in the church. And not all of them are negative, but all of them are important. So look, for example, at chapter 1, 
verse 11, where Paul gets into the thick of the letter, chapter 1, verse 11, notice that he's received a, a report from Chloe's people. Chloe's people reported uh, the problem that there has been quarreling among you, my brothers. So Chloe's people sound like tattletales, but they're really just former members of the church at Corinth who are concerned, or maybe, you know, maybe not former, maybe they're just traveling around. They may, may still have their home base in Corinth. I don't know. But Chloe's people have now come to Paul. They're in Ephesus, and they're saying, listen, there's the church is divided. It's been two and a half years now since you've been gone, and, and the church is suffering from all kinds of division. So Paul deals with that division in chapters 1 through 4. Then look at chapter 5. Chapter 5 begins with another report. It's been reported among you that there is sexual immorality. And then chapter 6 deals with the fact that the Corinthian brothers and sisters were going to law publicly, um, arguing their disputes in court against one another. So there were these various reports that Paul is writing back, addressing. And we see those specifically in chapters 1 through 6, two major reports. Then in chapter 7, something interesting happens. And if you read this letter this week before, um, or the past couple of weeks, in preparation for our study, you may have noticed that six different times Paul uses the same two words to introduce the next subject. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning... And then he deals with matters of marriage, singleness, and divorce. Look at chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols. And Paul leads the Corinthians in understanding how they're supposed to relate to one another in these various kinds of issues from several different angles in chapter 8 through 11. Look at chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. So apparently the the church had written some questions and Paul's addressing these questions. Hey, Paul, what, what about marriage? What about singleness? What about divorce? What about food offered to idols? What about spiritual gifts? And Paul's teaching now concerning this. Look at chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning collection for the poor church in Jerusalem. And then again, about halfway through, now concerning our brother Apollos. So Paul is addressing a number of questions and issues in the church. They're they're not all negative, but they are all important. And here's sort of the one running theme that we get the sense of about the church in Corinth as we read this letter as a whole, kind of taking a Google Earth perspective on what's going on there with the church. Just like we saw with the church on Crete, the church in Corinth looks more like Corinth than it does Christ. I wonder if that would be said of Winchester Baptist Church. Well, this letter's for us. As Anthony Thistleton, an excellent commentator that I'll be using throughout my study, 
explains, given the business prosperity of the city, as well as the competitiveness, pragmatism, and religious pluralism, 1 Corinthians stands in a distinctive position of relevance for our own times. Doesn't that sound like us? Business prosperity, competitiveness, pragmatism, religious pluralism. And from a pastoral perspective, the reason that I have chosen this particular letter to deal with next, along with uh, elders and that, that I have uh, counseled with, is because right now we're experiencing, by God's grace, peace and unity and health. And so we want to take a look at the things that could happen, the, the issues that regularly come up with churches in the calm of peace, rather than dealing with those difficult issues in the middle of the storm of said difficulty. So since Paul just seems to go from one topic to another, our series, our study of 1 Corinthians, I have entitled Let's Talk. Let's talk about, and this morning we're going to talk about the church from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. It's our sermon text for this morning. I've taken about half of this sermon to introduce us to the city and the culture and the book. Now I want to take the rest of our time together and look at the very first pericope, the first unit. So just like a modern letter, ancient letters begin with the sender, the recipient's, and then a greeting. And so you'll notice that that's neatly divided for, for us in verse 1, 2, and 3. Verse 1, the senders. Verse 2, the recipients. Verse 3, the greeting. And readers, like me, often make the mistake of skimming over this as if it's uh, trivial. Because we want to get to the good stuff, right? But friends, there's plenty of good stuff here for us this morning. In fact, way more good stuff than we could unearth in the next few minutes together. And what I want to show you is that the way Paul addresses the church at Corinth gives us a beautiful definition of the church. His description of the church at Corinth will teach us biblical ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. His description will give us a biblical ecclesiology. It will call us individually and corporately to action, and it will encourage us as to the gospel of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's talk about the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. This is God's word through the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, 
called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The senders, verse 1. Who are the senders? Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Interesting, two senders. Well, Paul introduces himself first, and uh, if he's writing a social media bio, he, he really doesn't make it very uh, imaginative and inviting like the experts tell us that we're supposed to do on our Twitter or LinkedIn accounts. But what he does is he gives something that is informative and, I suggest, humble. Do you see the humility in Paul's introduction? Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. You might think, well, no, he's immediately pulling out his apostle call uh, card and saying, look how important I am. But no, he's not. Paul does not point to his credentials and he had them. Paul does not point to his relationship in planting the church or his concern for the church, which were very real for him. But Paul points to God's will that made him an apostle of Jesus Christ, which you'll remember was completely the opposite of his will. It was God's will that Paul become a disciple and then an apostle of Jesus Christ. And by God's miraculous grace, God changed Paul's heart of hatred toward Jesus and his church into a love and sacrificial life for Jesus and his church. And friends, praise God for that grace. May he continue to rescue us from our foolish wills. Amen? But there's another sender, not just Paul the Apostle, but look there. Maybe Paul's secretary, maybe one who's going to deliver and then read this letter to the church at Corinth. That happened a lot. Paul didn't just send a letter, but he would send an emissary uh, to read and kind of explain or encourage the church with what he had written. And our brother Sosthenes. Well, maybe you saw that I skipped over one part of Acts 18. Acts 18, do you remember when Paul was drugged in before the tribunal by the, the Jews who opposed him and reviled him and hated him? And they wanted him to be, to be stoned? And then Gallio would have nothing to do with it? The Jews were so mad that Gallio wouldn't have anything to do with it, that they turned their fury onto the ruler of the synagogue next door, whose name was, guess what? Sosthenes. And they beat him to a pulp. And Gallio didn't do a thing to stop it. God, that's a very interesting story. But it was poor Sosthenes who got the brunt of the Jews' hatred toward Paul. So I, I could just see it now. 
Here's Paul and Sosthenes, apparently now team members. They're in Ephesus, not in Corinth anymore. So apparently Sosthenes has become a Christian and even a member of the team with Paul. So I can just see them traveling around now. Paul says, hey, Sosthenes, can you pass the salt? Sosthenes says, hey, Paul, remember that time I was beaten for you? Get your own salt, right? What an interesting kind of relationship, but the grace of God to take another ruler of the synagogue and make him a disciple of Jesus and put him on mission with the apostle Paul. And here now, he probably was the one to bring back the letter to his hometown, Corinth. Verse 2, the recipients to the church of God that is in Corinth. Let's hold that just for a minute. Put your finger there. Let's drop down to chapter or verse 3, to the greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul takes the common greeting of the Greeks and the common greeting of the Jews, and then he greets the church by making it decidedly Christian. Have you ever recognized that the reason Paul says grace and peace is because that's the way the Greeks would greet you and that's the way the Jews, the Hebrew language speakers would greet you. The The root of the word greeting was grace. So if you were in a Greek culture, you would say something like greetings, which meant joy. It's a joy to see you. And the root of that is the word grace. And if you were Jewish and you greeted one another, you greeted them with what's the word? Shalom, which means peace, the way things are supposed to be. So Paul takes both of those greetings, the Greek greeting and the Hebrew sheet, and he makes them decidedly Christian by saying grace and peace, and then situates them somewhere. Where does true grace come from? Where does true peace come from? From our God. Our God. And the, and our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. More than anything, the troubled, Divided, fleshly, business-driven, independent-spirited church at Corinth needed grace and peace. And the only place that any of us can get that, friends, is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now the, the main thing that I want us to look at today, not the senders, though that's important, not the greetings, though that's good stuff. I want us to look at the recipients, verse 2, right in the middle. Go back to verse 2. What I want you to see is that how Paul addresses the church at Corinth provides a beautiful and important definition of the church. It answers the question, what is the church? So read verse 2. And in fact, I'll invite you to read that out loud with me all together. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Stop. Paul describes and defines the church in six different ways. My wife is beginning to get nervous. Six points. Yes. I'll do my best to make them very brief and land the plane. Paul describes and defines the church. And what we, we, we'd learn here, we're motivated, we're called to action by these, and we're encouraged by the grace of God that we see here. So number one, if you're a note taker, I encourage you to write these things down. It's beautiful. What is the church? Number one, the church is assembled together by God. The church is assembled together by God. Look there at the very beginning of verse two. To the church of God. The church, the word church means assembly. So when we hear the word church, we often think building, maybe worship service. But the word means assembly. And so often we think of those who have been called out of, but the essence of the word church is really those who have been called together. The church is assembled together in God's presence as God's people. Notice there that it's the church of God. That word of God means that this is the church that belongs to God. It's his possession. He's the one who has gathered and assembled this church together. And if you know anything about the the letter of 1 Corinthians, basically what Paul is starting off with here is he's saying that the church belongs to God, not this leader or that leader, not to the wealthy, not to some self-styled inner circle of spiritual people who have the best gifts. This is God's church. The church is assembled together by God. Number two. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified means to be made holy. Now, you and I, when we hear the word holy, we immediately think of morally pure. Good. That's fine. But the essence of the word holy is to be set apart for special use by God. So, for example, we, we remember back to the Old Testament in the temple that stuff like uh, spoons and tongs for the altar or candles were holy. They weren't morally pure. What were they? They were set apart for God. 
for his use. They were special for God. So notice here that the church is set apart for God to those sanctified. That means that they have been made holy for God's, his possession, for his use. Now, what's beautiful about this is that is a passive verb that is perfect in its tense. For those of you who love language, what that means is that you didn't make yourself set apart. It happened to you. You have been set apart for God. And that happened to you in the passive sense. Number two, it's a perfect verb, which means that this is something that happened in the past and has been completed and has continuing results. Perfectly set aside for God. We have been separated from God because of our sin. But the, here's the gospel. God wasn't okay with that. God did not leave us set separated. God, by his grace, has called his people, his church, and he has set them apart, gathered them together for himself. He has cleansed us by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he has consecrated us for his service through his Holy Spirit. The church, number two, is set apart for God to those sanctified. How? In Christ Jesus. This did not happen because you earned it, because you worked for it, because you're a nice person or a pretty girl. This happened because of faith in Christ Jesus. It was the person and work of Jesus and him alone that makes us holy and sets us apart. What is the church? Number three. Continue to read in verse 2. To the church of God that is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, what is the next phrase? Called to be saints. Called to be saints. The church is called to be holy like God. Called to be saints. It's the same word for holy. Those who have been made holy are called to be holy. Saints are not those special class of deified people that the Roman Catholic Church declares. But notice every person, every member of the church is a saint. How's that feel? Well, in our men's breakfast, the dude's breakfast study yesterday, one man talked about this, and he said, that is amazing to me because I, I know my past. I don't know how I could ever be considered a saint. To which I responded, I know my past and I know my present. And I don't know how I could ever be a saint but that's because our holiness, our set-apartness 
is not dependent on us. It is fixed permanently because of the righteousness of Christ. So those who are made holy, those who are set apart for God, are called to be holy. Just like in verse 1, Paul was called by the will of God to be an apostle. Now in verse 2, Paul says every Christian is called to be holy because they've been made holy. So Thistleton says this calls attention to the individual responsibility of every member of the church to live out his or her consecrated status in Christ. In other words, Christians are called to a lifestyle that reflects their new status. We're different now. We're God's people, not people of the culture. So we've seen that the church is assembled together by God, set apart for God, called to be holy like God. Now look at number four. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, the church is all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the church? It's all in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is taking both an Old Testament phrase and a common phrase in Corinth of that day, and he is using it to describe the church at Corinth. To call on or to invoke the gods is a standard phrase for the activity of all of the worshipers in those temples in Corinth. You invoke the deities. And what that means is it's it's an act of appeal or request to that god or goddess, which is simultaneously an act of trust as one of the worshipers that they are going to respond to your request. Calling on the name of a deity indicates humility, doesn't it? It indicates need. Whether you're calling on Apollo, Aphrodite, or Jehovah God of Israel, you don't call on God unless you recognize yourself as under that God and in need of something that that God can give. Calling indicates faith that the one upon whom you are calling can actually meet that need that you cannot meet for yourself. What is the church? All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All who have seen our need. That we are sinners separated from God. And that we call upon God who has a name. What is it? The Lord Jesus Christ. The name, uh, when we call on the name, the name 
always represents the character and reputation and the the position and power of whatever that God is. And so, for example, when in the Psalms, the, the psalmist praises the name of the Lord, what he's doing is he's praising both the attributes of God and the actions of God. And, and what we're doing when we call upon the name of Jesus is we're calling out to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I wonder, have you ever called on the name of the Lord? I met with my neighbor this week and asked him directly, what's stopping you from calling on the name of the Lord? This was just Wednesday. Do you know what he said to me? Because it would change everything. And that scares me. I said, you're right. Are you one who calls on the name of the Lord? The church is all who call on the name of the Lord. Number five. Did you notice at the beginning of verse two? To the church of God, that is what? In Corinth. The church is assembled together by God set apart for God, called to be holy like God, all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in Corinth. The church, number five, is local. It is local. The church is in Corinth, but it's not just in Corinth. Paul writes letters to the churches of Galatia, to the church of the Thessalonians, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Here's how he described the church at Philippi. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and Deacons. That really gives us a good understanding of the three kinds of people that there are in the church. We are all saints, and then some of us are elders and some are deacons. But there's only three kinds of people in the church. Which one are you? The church is local. Corinth, Galatia, Thessalonica, Winchester. What church are you part of? Well, you say, I'm just part of the universal church. Okay, we got you covered there too. That's number six. The church is universal. Notice the emphasis at the end of verse two. Called to be saints, what? Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord And ours, friends, yes, we are all part of the universal church of Christ. But the Bible teaches that the church is also manifested locally in congregations and those who have been assembled together as God's people. That's a biblical theology of the church. So just a few questions for reflection and personal application as we close. Number one, 
Are you part of the church? You say, well, I'm here this morning. That's not what 1 Corinthians 1 verse 1 through 3 taught, is it? Here would be better questions to answer. In, in the honesty of your own soul. Are you part of God's people that has been assembled together by God's grace? Have you been set apart for God by faith in Jesus Christ? Do you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? And have you given evidence of that through a public declaration of your faith in Jesus called baptism? Are you part of the church? Number two, are you part of a local church? The believers here in Corinth knew who each other were, didn't they? They had a relationship with one another. Listen, I, I preached a message about a year ago, and I freely said this. Formal church membership is not explicit, but it is the logical conclusion of the New Testament. Formal membership shows that the universal church is lived out locally that we submit to the authority of Christ through his church, that membership facilitates the shepherding of Christ over his flock and functions as the discipleship relationship in which the Great Commission is fulfilled. And, and membership cultivates that covenant community locally. Are you part of the church? Are you part of a local church? And then maybe just one more question that I'll leave, leave you with. Are you pursuing your calling as a saint? You've been made holy, Christian, by the grace of the gospel of Jesus. My question is, you've been called to be saints together. Are we pursuing that holiness? Are we living our lives as the people of God? and demonstrating that we're set apart for God, for him. Praise God for this introduction to 1 Corinthians. May he encourage our hearts with it. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the gospel and the grace that we've seen here today through the Lord Jesus Christ. And now uh, I pray that you would be honored and worshipped as we celebrate the gospel at the Lord's table. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.